3: Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Canadian Music Week and the Bob Sets Podcast. My guest today is Merck mcculley who runs the hottest company in music today, the Hypnosis Songs Fund. Merck, how's it going?
2: Bob, it's a pleasure to be with you, mate. It's a long time.
3: Okay, so you're constantly signing new acts, new catalogs. Do you reach out to people or do they
2: approach you? Um, it's a combination of both. I would say that 70% of the deals that we make are you know, people that who, whose music that I'm listening to. And when I'm listening to that music, it makes me reach out and turn around and tell people that you know I admire the work that they're doing and that I would like them to be a part of hypnosis but it's it's generally a a, a long courtship I, I generally build the relationship with someone and in, in, in my case the you know many of these relationships are relationships that have been built over 10 20 30 40 years the time that i've been in this business so you know it's 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 there's a, a a bit of a a love affair that's been going on for a long period of time generally before i i approach anybody but then of course on the back of success you have a lot of people that pick up the telephone and want to be a part of what you're doing as well
3: okay let's talk about a couple specific cases you recently signed the red hot chili peppers how did that come together
2: so that when i can't talk about bob and and uh i apologize for that but that's a, a a deal that uh i'm under nda and that is is uh a, a deal that is 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 not something that we can talk about publicly and I'm I apologize. I should have said that at the very beginning.
3: Okay, is there a deal that would be representative that you can talk about
2: relatively recent? Sure. We can talk about Neil Young. we can talk about Lindsay Buckingham. We can talk about let's talk about Neil Young, Shakira.
3: Okay, let's start with Neil Young. How did you what was the entreaty with Neil Young? Did you reach out to him or did he reach out to you?
2: Well, I've, you know, I've had a relationship with Neil for about 25 years, maybe longer. Um, I was very close with his manager, uh, Elliot Roberts, sadly, who's no longer with us uh, anymore. And Elliot was a bit of a mentor to me. We were, you know, we, we had a very similar approach to the way we did things, always integrity-led. Um, and Frank Geronda, who was Elliot's lieutenant, for many, many years and is now Neil's manager, was also part of, 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 of that circle of, of, of friends uh, around Neil. And it was there therefore very easy. I mean, the, the funny thing about the Neil deal was that when I first started to see investors uh, four or five years ago to educate them on the idea of songs as an asset class um, and... I would explain to them, you know, the way that certain artists cared about music, and that it would be, you know, the kind of equivalent of, uh, you know, the songs being metaphorical children. Uh, if you like, and and therefore these were very emotional transactions that uh, the artist would find, uh, you know, difficult and that they would want to make sure that they were putting those songs into the hands of the right people. I always use Neil as the example. I had over 177 meetings with investors in the first 12 or 13 months of, of, of hypnosis as an idea, and in every one of those meetings, Neil was always the example of the sort of of artists that would do business with me as opposed to doing business with other people because they would know that I cared about the music, they would know that I understood that these were emotional transactions, and that they looked upon these songs as metaphorical children that they'd given birth to in the form of songs, and that they would want to know that those songs were going into the right hands. And you know, I've made my reputation and my success with artists and songwriters and producers, as opposed to at the expense of artists and songwriters and producers. And therefore, I have a a pretty good name in the artistic community. They know that I care. They know that I'm prepared to fight on behalf of the songwriters and the artists and the producers. And they also know that, you know, perhaps most importantly, that while I'll always want to you know, enhance the earnings and enhance the reputation at the same time, I would never do that at the cost of protecting their legacy. The legacy is always the most important thing, and protecting this, the value of the songs and protecting how the songs are used uh, is paramount. That's, that's inherent. You know, when you look at someone like Neil Young, you know, on the one hand, the songs are as valuable as they are because Neil is an incredible artist and and a wonderful songwriter, but equally well inherent in that is the way that he's conducted himself over the past 60 years. The reason why people like you and I look up to Neil is because of that conduct. And I've read you write about Neil, uh, you know, read what you've written about Neil many, many times over the decades, and you have a similar passion to mine most of the time. And that's partly based on the fact that Neil is a guy that we can believe in.
3: Okay, but walk us through the process of making a deal with Neil. Did you hear that he wanted to sell, or did you approach Frank and tell him, hey, I think this is an opportunity for you here?
2: It's a, it's a courtship that, that uh, uh, has existed from the time that hypnosis started. Um, and of course, you know, sometimes the artist will get to a place where they believe it's the right time for them to make a deal like this. And other times it'll never be the right time to, 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 to make a deal. In, in Neil's case, um, probably last October, He decided that this was the right time for him to make a deal and to uh, you know put the songs in. in, Let me just
3: stop you for a second. That was totally independent of you talking to him. He basically woke up in bed one day and said, "Today's the day." Okay,
2: correct. Absolutely, and 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 instructed his team that it was it was time to find uh, uh, you know the right people to do to to make a deal with. Um, so from that point, it became very easy. You know, the, the the lawyer and Frank reached out to me. I told them what I was prepared to do, literally within a matter of seconds. And ultimately, and you know, when you you have a career like Neil's, and 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 you know, you've got sixty years almost worth of incredible songs, you've got to obviously. Uh, you know, uh, understand what the mar- how the marketplace feels about your your catalog and your songs, um, but I was very confident that what I proposed to them right from the get go would prevail, and indeed it did, and the deal was done within about thirty days.
3: Okay, so you're saying that within a matter of seconds, you had a number that you could give them.
2: What I, it, it wasn't wasn't even minutes; it was seconds. So, how did you come up with that number? Because it, you know, as, as you may know, you know the 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 sort of general discussion around catalog sales uh, is based on a multiple. Um, so, for me to be able to express the multiple that I was prepared to pay for Neil just took a matter of seconds I, you know by that point i was already you know the better part of 2 billion dollars invested i knew what these catalogs were trading hands for and you know the one thing that i'm never going to do and it doesn't matter whether you're as famous as neil young or you know whether you're 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 someone that you know maybe is a decade into your your career your life i'm never going to mess a great creator around i i you know my my modus operandi is to and this has been this way throughout my career i you know if i believe that i should pay a dollar i'm not going to offer 90 cents and then let you talk me up to a dollar i'm going to offer a dollar and then, if you want more, I'm going to justify why I believe it's a dollar. So it's it's you know my my uh, uh, approach is always to be as real as I possibly can be. And then, if there's effort and time that's required to then explain and to justify why that's the number, then I'm prepared to do it. But I don't I don't try to nickel and dime people. I think that you know one of the things that I set out to do when I started hypnosis there were three three goals. The the first goal was to establish songs as an asset class that could rival golden oil. Um, the second was to use the leverage of hypnosis to then help to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation, because despite the fact that they're delivering the most important component to an artist having success, they are the low man or woman on the in, in the economic equation. And then the third uh, goal was to destroy the concept of traditional publishing where someone gives you a check but doesn't really add much value beyond that and to replace it with song management as as an artist manager you know i manage people with responsibility because i understand that you know first of all i can't play the guitar i can't sing a song i can't write a song the only thing that gives me a seat at the table with these great people is that i take my responsibility seriously and i think that that same responsibility should be extended to these great songs that make the world go round but that's not what traditional publishing is
3: let's get let's get down to the nuts and bolts so if you could make a deal or come up with a number that quickly did they tell you how much they were making from their catalog every year or is this something where you investigate all the available acts yourself and see how much they're making
2: so uh, basically everything that we buy is bought on verified data so the artist will supply the last three years of their publishing statements the last three years of their pro statements the last three years of their you know neighboring right sound exchange masters depending on what it is that's 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 on the table um but in 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 the case of neil what i gave immediately was the multiple that I was prepared to pay for it. They then supplied me with that verified data. Within a couple of days, they had the formal offer back with that number, that yearly number, times the multiple that I was willing to pay. And we were there very, very quickly after that. What is the multiple? That I can't talk about. I'm under NDA. But I. But what I can... But in general, I, what I can tell you is this, is that I've now invested over $2 billion, about $2.2 billion, at an average weighted multiple of 15. So I've, 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 I've bought some catalogs for a lot more than a 15 times multiple, and I've bought some catalogs for a lot less than a 15 times multiple. But the average weighted multiple across the $2 billion invested is 15 times.
3: Okay, let's assume you pay 15 times. For your purposes, how long a period of time do you calculate it will take for you to recoup your investment?
2: Well, it's probably something that's closer to 10 years time, rather than 15 years time, because of course, the context for all of this is the explosive growth of streaming, where when we started, you know, just over three years ago, we had 30 million paid subscribers to music streaming services. Today, we have 450 million paid subscribers. Then in addition to that growth, you know, you've got uh uh things like legislation that's taking place all over the world such as the copyright board ruling in the united states that has given the songwriter a 44 percent greater share of the pie incrementally between 2019 and the end of 2022 now that's been appealed by spotify and by amazon but not by apple and we believe that that 44% increase will prevail. So by the time you get to the end of 2022, a dollar's worth of income that you bought will be worth $1.44 if it was predictable, reliable income. And then we go to work actively managing the songs better than they've been actively managed for a long time because, you know, the big publishing houses that administer many of these songs when we buy them, they have as many as 20,000 songs per person. So, as good as they are at what they do, they don't have the ability to be able to affect the success of 20,000 songs per person. They just don't have the bandwidth to do it. We operate on a basis of 500 plus songs per person. Um, never more than a thousand songs per person we're adding all the time so that ratio of between 500 and a thousand songs changes depending on where we are between what we've acquired recently so today we acquired a hundred songs from andrew watt Um, Grammy winning producer of the year. Um, But we're adding more people to manage those songs and and manage the songs that are in the catalog on a regular basis. So it fluctuates between having 500 and 1000 songs per person, depending on where we are in that cycle. Ideally, as we get to the point where there's a steady state, it's 500 songs per person as opposed to 20,000 songs per person. And those people are very focused on putting the songs in movies, TV commercials, video games, getting new artists to cover those songs, getting new songwriters to interpolate them, making sure that they're on TikTok, making sure that they're on Peloton, that they're on the right playlists, etc. So by the time you add all of those ratchets, you know, what is a 15 times multiple probably becomes something less than a 10 times multiple if you're doing your job properly.
3: Okay, let's just use Neil Young as an example. So a lot of these older artists, Neil, Paul Simon, Dylan, have sold, and the conventional wisdom is they're doing it for tax reasons. In this particular case, you make a deal with all of these very highly well-known, respected artists. Is part of the negotiation where and how they get paid for tax reasons?
2: Well, certainly they will have all had... Very, very good independent tax planning. So, you know, you, you, you are probably aware that under the Trump administration previously, that at the midterms last time around, Trump tried to get rid of. Uh, uh, the the capital gains tax treatment for songwriters. Uh, Bart Harbison at the NSAI in Nashville stepped in with a very, very heavy lobby and they were able to turn that around and keep the capital gains tax in place. We've now got what I think we all believe is 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 a far, far better president than Joe Biden. But Joe Biden is also intent on uh, you know putting a tax program in place that will likely get rid of capital Gains tax for songwriters, whether that happens this year, whether it happens next year, it's certainly something on the agenda. I've been part of many, many discussions with the NSAI and various Congress people around the country, explaining to them number one, that songwriters deserve capital gains treatment, and number two, that even if we just look at hypnosis, hypnosis is probably paid about 500 to $600 million into the treasury based on songwriters getting capital gains treatment. If that capital gains treatment were to go away, many, many songwriters would have to think twice about whether or not they sold their songs.
3: Okay, but specifically, that would be the general landscape. Do you just make a deal and say, I'll pay you X for this, let's just use $100 million as a round number. Or do they say, We want, you know, like, is it like a baseball player where they say, Well, I want to be paid in Canada or I want to be paid here? Are those factors that hypnosis is involved in at all, where the money is generated from, where it goes?
2: We're not involved in the factors because, of course, we're not advisors to the artist or the songwriter or the producer. But if the songwriter or the artist or the producer has a legitimate tax plan with their advisors, as long as it's a legitimate tax plan, we will do our very, very best to cooperate and make the transaction. And the, the sale of the catalog is smooth and seamless as as, as the songwriter needs it to be. Um, and that's something that, you know, the, the music business that you and I came into wasn't such a sophisticated place. I'm happy to say it's becoming more sophisticated on behalf of artists and songwriters and producers every day. So, you know, there are many, many good business managers and lawyers out there that uh, have looked after their clients well, certainly in the 150 odd transactions that we've made to date.
3: Okay. An iconic artist doesn't have that much runway left. Paul Simon talks about not touring anymore. He's either 80 or going to be 80 this year. Now you say, whatever the multiple is, let's just assume it's less than 20, and you predict that you'll make the money back in 10. What is the pitch to someone who's in their 30s like Andrew Watt?
2: So that's really about de-risking that person's future. You know that if, if you look at Andrew Watt specifically, Andrew Watt is not only an incredible songwriter and, and perhaps the most important young songwriter in the world today, as I mentioned before. You know the the Grammy Award winning producer of the year. You know, killing it with Dua Lipa, with Miley Cyrus, with Post Malone, with Ozzy Osbourne, because he's a guy that, that that you know works on music that he loves. He just doesn't doesn't just work on 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 whatever is the flavor of the moment today. Um, and you know, in Andrew's case, he was a guy that was very very bright that made an admin deal, didn't take any money for it, and just went to work and relied on himself to uh, uh, succeed in order to put money in his pocket and to pay the rent and, you know, put food on his table and and, and everything else that goes with it. So for someone like Andrew, now at the age of 30, his future is entirely de-risked. What he works on tomorrow is his own choice because he's got enough money now to live for the rest of his life. And that's an important, you know, point of freedom for any young creator. Um, so you know it's it's, it's you know you is is you I think are are getting to it, you know, people have different motivations for 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 selling and in his case it's de-risking his future, and creating a relationship with a company like Hypnosis because when we make these transactions, that's the beginning of the relationship. That's not the sum total of the relationship. Every one of the hundred and fifty deals that we've made, these people are now part of the Hypnosis family. They work with the 83 people that I have around the world, and we're doing great things together. So for someone like Andrew, the prime motivation is, is, is that he's now de-risked his future. But the second part of his motivation is, is that he now has a partner to help execute many of the things, along with Scooter Braun, who's his manager, to execute many of the things that, that, that are important to him wow. in his growth as, as both an artist and a producer and a songwriter.
3: Okay. You say they're partners. What is the potential upside of an act that makes a deal with you?
2: So every artist, whether they ask for it or whether they don't, are going to get a minimum of two bonuses in our deals. And the reason why I have those two bonuses at the end of year three and at the end of year four is because I don't ever want anyone to have negative emotion for uh, making a deal with me. So I'm very clear with people from the get-go that I'm doing this on the one part. You know, my, the motive the, the, the motive of the fund is obviously to make money for our shareholders and for ourselves. The ulterior motive is to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation. But as we work towards the ulterior motive, you know, the motive is something that is is, is coming together very, very quickly. And if I'm right, and streaming grows from 450 million people inside of the next decade to 2 billion people around the world. If I'm right and the copyright board ruling stays in place and there's a 44% increase, if I'm right and we can actively manage our catalogs better than where they came from before, and there's that growth both from a capital perspective and from a revenue perspective, I want the songwriter to participate in that. So I build in bonuses at the end of year three and at the end of year four, that are as much as 20 to 30% of what the purchase price was in the first place.
3: Okay, what happens after year four?
2: After year four, then it, it depends on what, you know, that's a standard practice that I have for every deal that I make. If someone has negotiated something better than that after year four, then that's a different story.
3: Okay, so some people, this is a negotiable point.
2: It's a negotiable point because, as I say, I, w- I want people to be able to participate in the in, in the upside, um, and uh, I'd never want there to be any negative emotion in someone. Make, you know, I, I never want someone to knock on the door and say, "Dude, you were smarter than I was," which is why I'm very clear with people from the get go what my thoughts are on where this business is going.
3: Okay, now you're the big Kahuna. The primary wave is buying catalogs. Roundhill is buying catalogs. Now we saw Universal and Sony. Does everyone ultimately pay the same price, or is it a bidding war? How does an act ultimately decide?
2: Well, seventy percent of the of of the transactions that we make are off market transactions that never involve you know, Primary Wave or Roundhill or or you know, any of these other companies that are are, are out there. Obviously universal and Warner and Sony have made some deals of their own, but they're not particularly active. You can understand why if a Bob Dylan were available on the market, why Universal would do that. Whereas for the most part, they're not buyers. You can understand why Sony would make a deal like Paul Simon, where for the most part, they're not buyers. Uh, You know, Len Blavatnik has Tempo uh, as a fund within Warner's. Um, but in general, they seem to be buying only catalogs where they have a first or matching right on having signed an artist early enough to be able to have that built into to, to the contract. But I, I I don't fear the competition in the same way that many of my competitors feel the competition because I rely on the relationship that I have with artists in the community and songwriters in the community and producers in the community that I believe in and that in turn believe in me and that puts me in a situation where I don't have to compete, as I say, 70% of the time. And the 30% of the time where I am competing, if something special comes along, you know, we have people like Richie Sambora from Bon Jovi or the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan that are you know, on public record as having sold to us for less than what they were offered by competitors because the material difference was not the size of the check but the quality of the people that you're, you know, putting your metaphorical children in, in, into the hands of, you know, where I'm a, I'm a good surrogate parent when it comes to music, because I care. It's not just about the money for me. It's about doing what's right for the music. And what I've certainly discovered in the, the, the almost 40 years that I've been doing this is doing the right thing, money comes to you. If you do something based on money, Sometimes you'll find it very, very hard to 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 have that money coming to you. So you know, I'm 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 someone that is always making decisions based on what's in the best interest of the music, um, and then I I have the trust and in, in, in the surrender uh, to the good man above that the the money will find us.
3: Okay, in the case of Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, did you make a bid on
2: those catalogs? On Paul Simon, no. Um, on Bob Dylan, I'm um, I'm I'm under NDA, so I have to be careful about what I say. But I will say that um, you know Jeff Rosen, uh, who looks after Bob Dylan's publishing is arguably the most underrated person in our business. He's done an unbelievable job for Bob over the years. Bob obviously has uh, a level of faith and trust in him to allow him to execute that job, whereas sometimes many artists find that difficult to do. So I I pursued Jeff and and through him Bob for the better part of 18 months or two years to make a deal, and and uh, I believe that the only discussions that he ultimately had were with Hypnosis and Universal, and uh, I think that the deal that he was able to make was a deal that only a company that's worth, you know, thirty-three and a half billion euros to fifty billion dollars could have made.
3: Okay. Do you think you helped incentivize Bob to sell or was Bob th- kicking the tires on selling when you got in the picture 18 months ago?
2: No, I, I, you know, I, I worked very hard to get, uh, you know, when I talk about establishing songs as an asset class, inherent in that is that I believe that music has a value on behalf of artists and songwriters and producers that everyone has known all along but that the major companies and other people like primary wave who've been buying and selling catalogs for a long time didn't want to fully acknowledge and i was very happy to fully acknowledge what the true value of 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 these incredible songs are because it's in the context of explosive streaming growth and all of those other levers that i talked about so you know it's very very important on the part of hypnosis to truly recognize the value of these songs, to make sure you know ninety nine point nine percent of our deals out of the hundred and fifty deals that we made, a hundred and forty eight of them are directly with the songwriter, the artist, or the producer. There are only two deals that that were you know a collection of, of, of songs that were owned by Cobalt, for example, that we've made separate and apart from that. All, all of our deals are are made directly with the artist and the songwriter and producer, because I want them to be acknowledged. And I want them to be put in a position where they are, their, their future is de-risked, whether you're a 30-year-old Andrew Watt or whether you're a 75-year-old Neil Young, I want you to be the beneficiary of, 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 of the deal, not some corporation. And in doing that, I've truly... Do you ever talk to somebody
3: and say, you ever talk to somebody and say, I don't think you should sell?
2: I tell people that almost in every instance, that I don't think that they should sell, and I tell them exactly why I don't think that they should sell, but at the same time, I also tell them why… If they're at that place in their life where they want to sell, why I'm the right person to sell to. So, you know, because, you know, as you know, you could take a, a piece of real estate, uh, whether it's, you know, anywhere in the world, London, Los Angeles, you know, and, you know, New York, Miami, where I am at the moment. And, you know, you could say to someone, look, you know, you got to hold on to that property because 20 years from now, that's going to be, you know, something really, really special even relative to where it is right now and of course if, if, if you don't have 20 years what's the point right it's it's so, so if, if someone's at a point in their life where they're ready to sell then I'm the right person to sell to if it, if, if your music is something that I care about then I'm the right person to sell to if you' if your music is not something that I care about then there's a lot of other people out there
3: okay you only buy a hundred percent of the catalogs you buy
2: no, there are, there are instances where we've bought 50% uh, of 50% interest of the overall catalog. So, you know, we would never go in and, and, and pick, you know, 50 songs out of 100. It would be buying a half interest in all 100 songs, as an example. Um, so with, there are instances, you know, I would say probably out of the 150 catalogs that we own, 145 of them are owned 100%. And there are probably five of them where we own somewhere between 50 and
3: 75%. And on those five, and this is a minor part of your portfolio, do you have an option to buy the rest of it or is it left totally open?
2: Correct. No, we have an option to buy the, the rest of it. And in most of the deals that we make, even when we're buying 100% of a songwriter's catalog, if there's someone that, that is, is, is young and has a future, like Andrew Watt, as an example, then we'll have a first and matching right on their next catalog as well.
3: Okay. So let's assume I make a deal. You've established your bona fides, but theoretically, and I certainly hope this doesn't happen, you could die tonight. Okay. And as so could I. Are there key man clauses or the ability to buy back? Or can the catalogs be transferred freely after hypnosis purchases them?
2: No, there are, there are there are no key man clauses, and there are no abilities to buy back, but I have uh, probably relative to other, you know, I don't allow us to be called a publishing company, we're a, a song management company, but relative to, say, companies that are called publishing companies, we probably have a higher level of People in position marketing these songs and protecting these songs than any other company in the world, including Universal, Warner, and Sony, because the sort of executives that we have, whether it's Amy Thompson, who's the chief catalog officer, or Ted Cockle, who's the president, you know, these are people that are generally reserved for recorded music roles where the record company is getting the lion's share of the money, where the economics allow them to spend this kind of money on 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 executives in most publishing companies the money is being spent on A&R executives rather than marketing people. So I've put in an incredible network of 83 plus people now that, as I say, include people like Amy Thompson, Ted Cockle, Kenny McPherson, Richard Rowe, that are real artist people that understand and love the music as much as I do and that uh, are there to to ensure that the artist and the songwriter are protected. Um, In the case that I do get hit by that proverbial bus and i'm no longer there tomorrow and my children who have grown up with this music and who've grown up with these artists all of their lives are also a part of the company and they know what my standards are um and adhere to those as well so it's it's there's probably if you know if you'd asked me this question two years ago um that was a real issue right? Because obviously I hadn't made the company exciting enough yet at that point to be able to track people like Ted or Amy or Kenny or whoever it might be. Now at this point, you know, we're about to start our fourth year. Um, you know, as you very nicely said, this is the most you know exciting company in music perhaps today. And therefore there's no shortage of quality people that uh, are prepared to to follow in my footsteps and protect the artist if necessary.
3: Okay. Now, one thing you uh, addressed earlier I want to expand. Most of the money is in streaming. There's a dollar in streaming. Dollar of income comes in. Although Spotify is being beaten up, we all know that's not really what's going on. They have to stay in business. They're taking approximately 30%. Most people in the artist community feel of the remaining 70 cents, let's call it, that the songwriter got a raw deal. Now, we also know that these major, at this point, only three companies also have a huge footprint in songwriting. And therefore, on some level, they don't care where the money comes from. Is there any chance that the percentage Will grow. You know, you talk about the legal with 144, but as we go down, what's an appropriate amount of a streaming dollar that should go to the songwriter, and how do we get there?
2: Yes, there's no question that the songwriter's share of the income is going to grow. And, you know, the, the business that you and I came into, both as fans and then as professionals, was one that you know I, I affectionately refer to as the post-Beatles paradigm, right? Where ninety percent of the artists that we would sign and work on were people that you know were self-contained. They you know had a good idea of who they were, who they might become. They wrote their own songs. They you know knew what their album cover should look like, what their stage show should look like, and the job of someone like you or I was to a, believe in them, and B, to put a plan in place to bring their ideas to fruition and to bring them success, make other people believe in them. Today, the business is much more like the 1940s and the 1950s, where 90% of the artists that are being signed are very talented people, but that are absolutely reliant on outside songwriters to deliver their hits. So, you know, I don't know if you know this statistic, but you know, we were talking about Bob Dylan a few minutes ago. It's the second of the last Bob Dylan album in 2014, uh, which I think was Tempest, um, that is the last album that became a Billboard Top 100 album of the year that didn't have an outside songwriter on it. Um, so the songwriter wow. I did not has that. never... Yeah. So the songwriter has never been more important um, in our lifetimes, but perhaps ever in history than they are today. And, you know, if you're Monty Lipman or if you're John Janick or Rob Stringer, you know, you need to have a relationship with, you know, whether it's Andrew Watt or Taylor Parks or Benny Blanco or the Monsters and Strangers, those relationships are more important to you today than your, than your artist relationships are because that's where the hits are coming from is, is, is from the songwriter. But I, I want to, to, um, take up a point that you made a minute ago which is you know you said they didn't care where the money was coming from but the truth is is that they absolutely care where the money is coming from and and the reason why the songwriter is the low man or woman on the totem pole in the economic equation today is because the three biggest song companies in the world being universal warner and sony don't advocate for songwriters um you know, and it's not because they don't want to; it's because they can't. Because they're, you know, those three biggest publishing companies in the world are owned by the three biggest recorded music companies in the world. And on the recorded music side of the business, they're getting four fifths of the revenue. They're getting an eighty percent gross margin, a forty percent net margin, and in general, they own those master recordings in perpetuity. Right? As, as you and I know, there are very few artists that actually own their own masters, right? Conversely, on the song side of the business and the publishing side of the business, you've got a fifth of the revenue, you've got a fifth of the margin. And quite rightly, whether it's through good management and lawyering in the first place, or reversions or renegotiations, the songs end up back in the hands of the people that co created them. So recorded music, Controlling publishing and stopping publishing for advocating for songwriters is why you have this unbelievable disparity in the way that you describe the dollar being split. You're right. 30 cents goes to Spotify or Apple. Now, you can make an argument that that $0.30 cents will eventually become $0.26, cents, $0.24, cents, and I'm quite certain it will, but that's not the material point. The material point is what happens to the other $0.70, cents. and currently the other $0.70 cents is $0.58 and a half cents going to the record company. Because of their power that they wield mercilessly, they are paying most artists on a sale rather than on a license, when it actually should be a license. If it was a license, they'd be having to split that 58 and a half cents with them. But by paying them on a sale, they pay them about nine cents out of every dollar. So they're clearing almost 50 cents out of every dollar in recorded music. And conversely, on the song side of the business, you've got 11.5 cents that remain. Sometimes you've got four, five, six songwriters on a song. They have to split that 11.5 cents with their publishers in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, these great songwriters that are delivering the songs that make the world go round are getting fractions of a penny on every dollar. And that you know, as I said at the very beginning, this has been changing. This system has been the ulterior motive of, of hypnosis. The reason why I created hypnosis is that in managing people like Diane Warren and the Dream and Justin Tranter, people that were songwriters at at, at at the very, very highest heights of success, and yet they weren't getting what they should be getting because of this system. Where and and people will turn around to me and say, "Listen, you know, why are you blaming blaming Universal, Warner, and Sony?" Aren't is, isn't the way that songwriters are paid, you know, dictated by legislation. And the answer to that is absolutely it's dictated by legislation, but how is legislation affected? It's affected by lobbying. It's affected by advocacy. So if you don't have the three biggest companies in the world advocating for songwriters and fighting for them to get paid more money, how do you expect that to be reflected in in the legislation? So we're a catalyst to bring that change. I'm very, very vocal about it. As I say, it's the ulterior motive and, and every one of my 490 odd institutions investors has known from day one that this uh, ulterior motive is the real reason why the fund was created. Because I knew that if I talked to Bob Lefzitz and I talked this way, that you know Universal, Warner and Sony could squash me like a fly if they wanted to. But now they can't because I have a multi-billion dollar company behind me, some of the finest song assets in the world. And I have a platform to speak on behalf of the songwriter and the creator um, and to try and bring change. And of course the serendipity of it all is that if I can bring that change and I can get the songwriter paid more money, it's also in the best interest of my shareholders because they'll get more money for the songs that we own. And therefore they're prepared to fight and they're prepared to put their money in. And, you know, when you've got, uh, uh, uh you know, investors that range from the Church of England to Investec to Invesco to Ruffer to you know AXA and Newton and on and on and on. These are all people that 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 have a lot of power in their own right. Um, so that was really the motive. Okay,
3: but let's just say, let's just say, you get more for songwriters, or you agitate for that, or advocate for that. It's got to come out of the recording company's end. I mean, they're going to fight does. really well, well, hard.
2: You know, what they've, what they've done, Bob, which I think is unbelievable, you know, <laughs> if you and I were having this conversation five years ago, we'd never be able to look each other in the eye and say that the best years of the music industry are in front of it, right? We can say, hey, remember back in 99, remember back in the year 2000, whereas right now you know i can look my 19 year old son in the eye and say you should absolutely devote yourself to music because the best years of the music industry are in front of it so you know universal warner and sony and despite the fact that our 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 business has been saved by Daniel Ek and Spotify and and the way that Apple have followed in Spotify's wake, um, you know, creating this very powerful one-two punch and obviously lots of great uh, regionals around the world as well. Um, You know, we're making them out to be the villain, right? We were, you know, we've, we've just given evidence for the last four or five months in the UK in the Department of Culture, Music, and Sciences hearings in Parliament, right? And the the if you look at our written evidence uh, and also our our personal evidence, our in person evidence, the hearings were originally called uh, an investigation into the business practices of music streaming services. And the first couple of sentences of our written evidence basically say, you know, look, we appreciate that you're doing these hearings into the quote-unquote business practices of music streaming services, but we think what you're going to find very, very quickly, and we want to prepare you for this, is that what you're really going to be investigating is the unhealthy relationship that exists between the three major companies, recorded music companies in the world, controlling the three major publishing companies in the world, and stopping them from advocating for songwriters. Mm -hmm. That's what's stopping the songwriter from being paid properly. And the funny thing, and the most ironic thing about all of this is that if you're Big John and you're running Sony, if you're Guy Moot or Carrie and you're running Warner Chapel, if you're, um, excuse me, Jody and you're running Universal, you're delivering the most exciting people in your entire company's business and yet you're not being rewarded properly for it, right? The, 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 it's, it's not, I'm not, when I uh, am critical of the majors, I'm not critical of, of the publishing companies. I think the publishing companies are doing great work. I'm not critical of the people that, that work in the recorded music companies. What I'm critical of is the paradigm. There are people that work in those companies that are as passionate about music, that care as much as I do and, 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 and you do, and that do great work. But they're operating under a 75-year-old paradigm that doesn't properly recognize the role of the songwriter. And that's why I'm intent on changing it.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
1: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
3: Let's go to the other side of the equation. You own these slungs. There's administration. This is something that's been evolving in the Internet era. Cobalt was the first mover. Universal seems to have updated their systems. Let's leave sync aside at this point in time. Who administers hypnosis?
2: So we have deals with everybody. So we, we you know, Cobalt, I would say, are our preferred administrator. We believe that they collect more. We believe that they collect it faster. And we believe that they pay it through faster. And we believe that they do it in a completely transparent way. But you're absolutely correct that Universal and Sony and now Warner 2 are all working hard to try to get to uh, a, a better place, right? But the difference is this, is that you know most of these big companies also operate on a two-year money-go-round, right? Where they collect some money in Spain and it sits there for six months. And then, you know, it oper- they, they send the money to the UK and it sits there for another six months. And then they send it to the US and it sits there for another six months. And because most of them still only have two non-transparent reporting periods a year, you know, January 1 to June 30, and they pay you out at September 30, July 1 to December 31, and they pay you out at March 31. You know, they're basically holding onto your money for the better part of two years. And there's a, a, a great book, you um, uh, that's out this week um, by Will, the, the the former chief of will Spotify, Will Page, that, you know, will tell you that, you know, if you were to take the capital that is being used by universal warner and sony on a daily basis from monies that haven't gone through to songwriters that haven't gone through to artists it's a massive part of, of of you know it's the capital that they use to keep their businesses going and making new investments um and this is artists money and and songwriters money you know willard Ru- Ru- ardrix at cobalt Um, I think, came to the business 20 years ago with a very noble and important idea, which was to have transparency for the songwriter and the artist and to put them in a position where their money was being collected quickly, it was being paid through quickly, and that they understood every step of the way. The fact that that has now forced the major companies to try and, and, and at least uh, go some level of, of, of emulation, or to some degree of emulation, I think is uh, uh, the, the, the artistic community and the songwriting community owe Willard a debt that could never ever be repaid. And certainly, the spirit of hypnosis follows very much that of Cobalt, that you know, we're forcing people to make change that they don't want to change that, that they that they don't want to make or that they don't feel that they can make. Because of course, people fear change, right? On a on a on a personal level, I like things to be the same way every day in my personal life. But in my professional life, you know, people call me a disruptor. I've never used that word myself but I'm absolutely wanting to destroy these paradigms that have existed and that have put the artist at the bottom of the pile and I want to put them take them to the top of the pile because without the songwriter and the artist what do we have right if you go and see an artist Okay, we can Okay, okay we well, made
3: that point Yeah,
2: we made that point many
3: times. Let's go back to administration.
2: But you can't, but you can't but you can't make it enough, Bob. You you know the the, the well, reminder. That is that the true, but we only have a limited only had time three rises in the past 86 years, right? There's, there's so much, and I, I, I'll use this word and you can beep it out if you like, but there's so much fuckery in this business that you have to keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. So thank you for indulging well, me. No, those Let's are all good points, but I want to
3: be able to address uh, a little bit more. So you say that hypnosis uses multiple administration companies and would hypnosis ever go into the administration business?
2: Um, you know, it, 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 <laughs> so we use multiple administration companies. I say Cobalt is our preferred administrator, but we do great work with Sony on a daily basis on our artists and songwriters. The same thing with Universal, the same thing with Warner, including Concord as well and and, and, and several others. Because, of course, when we buy our catalogs, uh, often there is no administration deal in place. So we can take over on day one. But at other times, there's a year left on the administration. There's two years left on the administration. We've even bought some catalogs where the administration is in, is perpetual with a particular company, and I think that you know you you talked about universal. Um, you know, kind of stepping up to the plate as far as emulating cobalt or, or, or doing something that's forward thinking. But I think that you can give uh, Sony a lot of credit on that front as well. Um, and I think that, that, that now with Guy Mood at Warner Chapel, I think he's going to want to do the same thing. So, you know, I have high hopes that, that all of them will want to do the same thing. I'm, I'm in the asset business. So, you know, from that point of view, I believe that my investors' money should go into uh, buying great songs, um, and that you know you can rent these services from people. But as we approach, you know, what is now, you know, two point five billion dollars invested, and I expect that by the end of the next two years, we'll be about six billion dollars invested. It might be in the best interest of our shareholders. To have an administration company. Um, and that's something that that we'll continue to 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 keep an eye on. But you know, that to me is not the priority. The priority is to to stay very focused on buying these great songs while they're there to buy.
3: Okay, let's talk about you specifically, Merck. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do for a living? How many kids in the family? What was your adolescence like?
2: Um, so I, I was born in a mining town in Quebec that doesn't exist anymore. When the, when the mine dried up, the people dried up too. Um, so I ended up being raised in Nova Scotia. My, my parents were, were Greek immigrants to, to Toronto in the 1950s before I was born. My father had been a soccer player in, in Greece for a team called Pauk, and he was brought to Canada to play soccer. For a team called the toronto star which is the sort of forefather of the toronto mls team today Um, and his brother was a topographer for the iron ore company of canada Uh, so when he retired from soccer he went to work uh, with his brother in those days you know the brother was was responsible for designing the infrastructure that the miners would would need to live in, and, and do their job and there were opportunities whether it was building restaurants or schools or, or, or whatever the case might be when all that dried up we we moved to Nova Scotia and I had this very idyllic childhood in in Nova Scotia but I was very very lucky I've got I've got a sister um, who's still in Toronto uh, today and 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 uh, uh, she's lovely and everything, but you know, at, when we were kids, we didn't see eye to eye on 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 just about anything, right? If, if it was black, you know, she loved the Boston Bruins. I loved the Montreal Canadiens. She loved white. Which one of I you is black. older? She's one year older than I am. So I had this very serendipitous thing happen to me, though, which is that my uh, eldest cousin my father's brother's eldest son, who was about 10 years older than I was, um, he got in trouble in Greece because Greece was under a military junta and if you were, you know, 14 or 15 years old and you were smoking dope and, 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 you know, listening to, to music um, and wearing peace signs that the Greeks believed were like a broken crucifix, you were, you were a, a target for, for the military. So my uh, uncle sent my older cousin Mike to live with us. And this guy arrived with long hair. He arrived with, uh, Argus by Wishbone Ash. He arrived with the first two Fleetwood Mac records, the, the Peter Green ones. He arrived with Paranoid by Black Sabbath, Superfly by Curtis Mayfield, uh, T for the Tiller Man. Uh, just about you know, fourteen or fifteen albums that are still amongst the fourteen or fifteen albums that are the most important in my life. And he knew everything about drugs and he knew everything about girls and he was someone to aspire to be because he also knew an awful lot about music and that, really kind of put me on the path that, you know, I'm still on today and I'm still influenced by, as I say, those those 14 or 15 records that he had. And we would sit in in the room that my parents had constructed for him. And we had one of those, you know, drop down turntables where you'd stack the records up and they'd drop one at a time and play through, and then you'd turn them all over and play them through. And I fell in love with this idea of 20 minutes of music and then instead of wanting to hear the next 20 minutes of music, you'd want to play that same side over and over and over again because it was so magical. Um, and you know he arrived, he gave me a present for the first birthday that that I had with him there, which was a copy of Sgt. Pepper's. And then that got me into uh, a place of spending every penny that I had. On, on records. So very soon after, I bought my own tea for the tiller man. Very soon after that, I bought Harvest. Uh, and these records, you know, a small town of, of, of 2,000 people, these records really start to teach you that there's something else that's going on in the world uh, that's not going on in, in, in your world. And then concurrently with that, my parents, one of the restaurants that they had was a diner, and the diner had a jukebox in it. And that jukebox had everything from Elvis Presley singing Mac Davis's song in the ghetto to, you know, looking out by my back door by CCR. And again, these records had a massive effect on me. So, you know, I can very distinctly remember in the ghetto as being the first record that I ever heard that made me sad. And that made me realize that, in fact, everyone's world wasn't perfect in the way that my world seemed to be perfect. So, if you like, it was my first kind of real experience of empathy brought out by Mac Davis's great words and Elvis's great delivery. and. You know, I suddenly realized that I was going to the school of Neil Young and going to the school of Lou Reed and Led Zeppelin and Patti Smith and eventually The Clash. And, you know, these these are, are, are the people that kind of educated me and prepared me for a world I can remember playing Needle in the Damage done by Neil Young and having nightmares that I was taking heroin and waking up in, in the morning and kind of looking at my wrists to see whether or not there were really track marks there. Um, so the music had an unbelievably profound effect on me. And, you know, you you uh, I think when you write your best is when you write about Elton. And uh, uh, when you write at your best is when you're writing at Elton about Elton and and those Elton records had the same effect on me, particularly a little bit later than, than the ones that you rave about, but particularly Captain Fantastic and Someone Saved My Life Tonight, those those are, you know, unbelievably important records for me. So they gave me the ability to manifest how the fuck to get out of this town with 2,000 people in it and go on to manage Elton John was all based on, on that obsession with this music and, and recognizing that, that uh, um, uh, there was something for me to do. Because, you know, I, I talked about Elliot Roberts earlier. Um, I was very clear from the time I was seven or eight years old that I had no musical talent and that I was never going to be you know, Neil Young or Jimmy Page or Robert Plant. So I started to read about these people in everything from Rolling Stone to Cream to whatever the library had. And I started to learn about people like Elliot, and I started to learn about people like Peter Grant. And suddenly there were, you know, kind of role models there for me that you know, I believed that I could emulate. I, I, I got the, the 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 real message that, uh, you know, people that were making music wanted to make music and that other people had to come along and protect them and make sure that, that, you know, the commerce was maximized with the art not being compromised. Okay,
3: so you graduate from high school. What's your next step? How do you get out of Nova Scotia?
2: Um, I I literally ran away, uh, you know, I ended up in in, in uh, you know I'd been writing letters to Simon Draper at Virgin Records in the UK and and for for those that don't know Simon was Richard's uh, Richard Branson's cousin and he was the guy that that uh, uh, you know really was the musical brains behind the company so you know he had signed Tangerine Dream he had signed Mike Oldfield he had signed Robert Wyatt. But then, of course, subsequently, everyone from the Sex Pistols to XTC to Simple Minds to UB-40 to, uh, you know, the Human League, Peter Gabriel, you know, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, UB-40, on and on and on. So this amazing thing happened where I find myself working for Virgin Records still in my teens. Whoa, 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 in a, little bit,
3: a little bit slower. Wait. How do you write these letters? How do you literally get a job at Virgin Records? How old are you and where and what is the job?
2: So I'm 18. I go to Toronto and I get a job for six months um, thanks to a girlfriend that I had working for the Canadian uh, distributor of Motown. And before I got that job, I uh, knew that Virgin was opening And they were going to open as a standalone label. And I went and met with the guy that was going to run it. And he offered me the job to be the marketing person, the one and only marketing person at Virgin Records at that point. uh, But the company was not going to open for six months. So for that six month period, I got this job working for the Canadian distributor of Motown, and which was a company called Quality Records, and run by this magical guy called George Streeth, and uh, uh, a, a guy called uh, uh, Larry McRae, and Cameron Carpenter, who I know you you know quite well in, of course. in, in Canada. And that that kind of became my little gang for this six-month period. And the the funny thing about this is that within days of me starting, the company took on a distribution deal with Clive Calder's then brand-new Jive Records. And uh, the guy that uh, uh, was the Jive person, the young Jive person, in the same way that I was the young quality records person, was Barry Weiss. So, the first phone call that we ever had, the first phone call I ever made was to Barry Weiss. The first phone call Barry Weiss ever made, you know, in in terms of being in the music business, was to me to talk about a band called the Comsat Angels that we both loved that had been on Polydor and had a rough time and had now signed to Jive and were affectionately known as the CS angels because the Comsat satellite company was taking action against them not to use the name. Um, So I was there for six months and then I went immediately to Virgin Records and, and started to work for Virgin Records. And I developed my relationship with Simple Minds and I developed my relationship with orchestral maneuvers in the dark and with the Human League and, you know, With all these wonderful artists, because Virgin had this serendipitous situation where even though they were making left of center, you know, what was known as alternative music, it was succeeding commercially in wild ways, you know, Culture Club were becoming the biggest band in the world, Simple Minds were soon to follow suit. Um, and that was my big passion project and remains one of my great passions to today. Um, same thing with OMD and same thing with UB40 who had massive success with Red red Wine. And I was young and unsophisticated and I didn't realize that uh, uh, I wasn't working for the artist, right? I, I, because Virgin was the most artist-friendly record company I honestly thought that I was working for the artist, not for the, you know, for someone else. And um, what happened was that they rewarded my success at the label by allowing me to be a part of signing a, one of the most wonderful Canadian artists of all time, someone that I would still rank, even though she's never had the career that she deserved, alongside Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Robbie Robertson and Leonard Cohen is, you know, in The weekend and, and Drake is Canada's greatest products. Um, it was a girl called Mary Margaret O'Hara and she was Catherine O'Hara's little sister and she was unbelievably special. And, uh, uh, you know, we got Andy Partridge from XTC to agree to make her record And even though Andy was a wonderful artist in the form of XTC, he wasn't a wonderful producer and he wasn't someone that was prepared to recognize that in the producer's role, that his job was to be there to serve Mary Margaret and to help her make the best record that she wanted to make possible. So there were all kinds of problems um, from the get-go in the making of that record. And even though the record eventually came out three or four years later as a record called miss america and won a lot of awards and was album of the year the actual making of the record was a very very painful experience and i recognized at that point that for the first time suddenly the light bulb went off and and i found myself in a position where i wanted to be on mary's side rather than on the record company's side and at that point, I became a manager. And uh, they were probably going to fire me anyways um, because <laughs> it was very clear that I was on on, on on Mary's side and and the company had new leadership and, and uh, 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 you know, probably wasn't going to work out. But I, I basically went to two guys in London that I had a relationship with, a guy called Rod Smallwood, who you know, and a guy called Andy Taylor, who you know. And I said, listen, I've had this epiphany I'm not supposed to work for a record company. I'm supposed to work for the artist. I'm supposed to be a manager. And Rod and Andy said, you're right. And, you know, you should come in with us. They were both 15 years older than I was. Okay, wait a little bit Yeah,
3: I worked at Sanctuary, of course, in the 80s, a very different company, ultimately, than the one you worked for. But how did you know Rod and Andy to throw in with them?
2: Because I was a fan of Iron Maidens, and I was particularly a fan of the way that Rod uh, acted on behalf of Iron Maiden and protected the band, and I I knew that you know that that he was one uh, a role model that uh, you know you could certainly uh, do a lot worse than to and um, you know the, the the great thing about these two guys and, and you know I'm, I'm, you already know this but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it for everyone else that doesn't is that, you know, they were best friends, but they couldn't be more different from each other, right? One of them was completely business. The other was completely creative. One of them hated sports. The other one loved sports. The only thing that they had in common was that they loved drinking, right? And they loved Iron Maiden. And uh, I became the bastard offspring of the two of them. I, I took what Andy knew about business and I absorbed it all. I took what Rod knew about integrity and about uh, creativity and, you know, protecting people and fairness. And I absorbed all of that as well. And I, I became, a, a, as I say, a, I'm, I'm very proud to be uh, the bastard offspring of, of of the two of them. And I, I've certainly um, built a career on the back of lessons that they taught me. And there was another guy that was very, very important in this, even before Rod and Andy, and that was a guy called Bruce Finley from Edinburgh in Scotland who managed Simple Minds. And this guy, very, very similarly to Rod Smallwood, he understood that your job was to go out and create as much enthusiasm for your artists' music as possible and get the troops on your side and get them working and get them in love with the band, your band, as much as you're in love with your band. And he taught me a tremendous amount as well. And those, those three guys along with Elliot Roberts are, are, you know, the, the people that I consider to be my mentors.
3: Okay. A couple of questions here. A, what year did you start working for sanctuary? B, the company ultimately goes public. Can you tell us the insight and how that happened and C. how did you essentially end up running it?
2: Sure. So, so the, the, uh, this is probably 86. And probably the better part of, of um, five or six years later, you know, at, in 1986, we're Iron Maiden's management company, right? When the, when the company ends in 2006 or so, We're still Iron Maiden's management company, but we go from being Iron Maiden's management company to eventually being Elton John's management company and Guns N' Roses' management company and Beyonce's management company with me driving all of those artists. Um, And the way that it happened was that we recognized in the early 90s um, when uh, Polygram became a company called PLG. That was the first real consolidation of a major record company where they went from effectively having four companies to basically having four A&R centers with a common marketing department and a common promotion department, that this was going to disenfranchise many artists because if you were one of the artists that was selling 10 million records around the world, you were going to get a lot of attention because of that. But if you were an artist that was going to sell a million records around the world, that was no longer interesting, believe it or not, (laughs) knowing what we know about what happened between 2001 and 2016, there's a point in the 90s where being able to sell a million copies around the world is not interesting to the major record companies. And we knew that this was going to disenfranchise a lot of artists, and it would particularly disenfranchise... A lot of artists in the hard rock world that, that that we had a lot of expertise in, whether that was a Megadeth or a Slayer or whoever it might be, and we wanted to be prepared to be able to service those artists better than the big companies. So, you know, we created an independent record company that became the biggest independent record company in the world and that worked with everyone from, you know, Morsi to Megadeth to you know uh, Ozzy and, and, and Osborne and, and and Kelly Osborne and, and many many others, um, and became very much best in class for its period. We had the biggest booking agency outside of North America that was helter skelter, that booked everyone from from Metallica through to ACDC as well as Iron Maiden. And the idea was we built a real 360 company bravado merchandising that, uh, you know, merchandised everyone from the Spice Girls to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Iron Maiden. Um, you know We built a company that could provide services to all of these wonderful artists on a 360 degree basis. But my vision of 360 was very, very different from the modern record company's version of 360. My version of 360 was, look, we're going to make a capital investment in this artist. In order to get that capital investment back, we need to have as many income streams as possible. But within each of those income streams, we're going to give the artist the best deal possible. And it'll be based on what the market is being, is, is, is prepared to pay for that artist. And the company, as you know, was wildly successful for a long period of time. It went public. And then, you know, what happened was that as you get from 2005 into 2006 the company was the first major company to feel the effect of the bottom falling out of the record business because people were now able to download their music for free illegally rather than to pay for it and we were uh, too big um, you know we were in that that period of time where we weren't small enough to be able to make changes quickly and the effect on the company was disastrous and also the company didn't have the level of sophistication that it should have with the stock market and its dealings with the stock market and effectively what happened was that you know after seven years of 30% year-on-year growth instead of the company going to the stock market and saying look, that type of growth isn't possible right now. Illegal downloading is killing the music business. But we've got these amazing artists like Elton John and Beyonce and Guns N' Roses and Morsi and many, many others. Um, And what you need to do is you need to let us batten down the hatches and get to a point where we ride this out. And then we'll be back for you. And instead, more growth was promised. And the company wasn't able to sustain itself. So it was sold to Universal. That becomes a very, very important uh, lesson learned in the uh, uh, way that then hypnosis gets launched. Because when I launched hypnosis, I ensured that I had a level of sophistication and a level of advice at the very, very highest level um, from the financial community Um, that would ensure that I would never, ever be in a position where shareholders were let down again. So it's something that I had to be very, very honest about in in the sense that that, um, I was never going to try and hide the fact that Sanctuary didn't succeed, even though the idea was wonderful. Um, But I also had to make sure that I had the right people around me um, in order to gain the trust of the financial community.
3: Okay, so what do you do from 2006 to hypnosis?
2: Um, I pretend that everything is perfect, but really I'm terribly depressed. And while I continue to manage lots of wonderful artists like Morrissey and Josh Stone and Diane Warren and Justin Tranter and The Dream and 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 you know lots of incredible people, Macy Gray, I'm probably you know clinically depressed, and I'm trying to keep my chin up. And trying to uh, you know find myself again because you know sanctuary was a twenty one you know twenty twenty one year experience that uh, was really about you know I think doing something important um, and then it didn't work and when that happens of course um, you know not only do you feel like a failure but probably wrongly you also assume that the rest of the world sees you as a failure as well. And I, I found myself talking to people all the time and people would would you know say nice things and do nice things. but it didn't feel that way to me. It, to me it felt like it was a, a, a massive failure. Um, so it took me a long time to, to come out of that. And, and even though I think that you know my friends and my family and, and my contemporaries didn't ever really see it, my artists never really saw it. I knew it. I knew that I was fighting um, you know, this, this feeling inside of me on a daily basis. And it just took me, you know, the minute that, that I hatched the plan for hypnosis, and I knew exactly what it was, um, I came out of that, because then I had clarity on what I could do to take this previous failure and turn it into not a victory for myself, but a victory for the songwriting community, because um, that's the the you know the idea of hypnosis was born out of managing Diane Warren, managing Justin Tranter, managing The Dream, and realizing that these people were delivering massive hit songs for artists and not getting paid properly. And what I saw was that um, streaming. Was and and you know Daniel Eck and and Martin Lawrence and at, at Spotify can attest to this. It was very clear to me, the first time I ever saw Spotify, that not only was it going to be wildly successful, but the effect that it was going to have was to take music from being a discretionary or luxury purchase and turn it into a utility. Because that $10 price point, that ability to have access to, at that point, almost everything, to today, pretty much everything, um, you know, was going to be appealing enough to the passive consumer to make them want to pay for music. So, you know, if you look at where we are today, you know, the benchmark for extraordinary success in our business used to be the platinum record, you know, million copies in a country like the United States that has 360 million people in it. Today, you know, that one in 360, you know, tells you that the average person might love music, but they didn't love music enough to put their hand in their pocket and pull out money to pay for it. Today, we have 100 million homes in the United States that are paying for a paid music streaming subscription. So we've gone from 1 in 360 people paying for music to 1 in 3.6 people paying for music. That's why you're seeing the sort of money flooding into this business that you're seeing is because music has gone from being this luxury purchase to now very much being a utility purchase. That was very clear to me. Alongside that, I knew that these great songs that these songwriters wrote, that when they hit, they became a part of the fabric of society, and when they become a part of the fabric of society, they start to have predictable, reliable income, and that that would make them investable. Because those are the same reasons why we look at Golden Oil, is that predictability and reliability.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
3: Okay, so you said that you had 177 meetings. What transpired yeah. to build hypnosis?
2: <laughs> so out of those 177 meetings, which were really about educating the investment community, as I say, about this predictability and reliability of these income streams, and also the fact that the income streams were uncorrelated, right? If, it, you know, I compare them to golden oil and, you know, if, 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 the, if political upheaval, if there's some sort of political upheaval tomorrow, the price of golden oil will be affected, but the price of songs and, and the revenues associated with songs aren't affected because if people are living their best lives, they're doing it to a soundtrack of music equally well, if they're experiencing the sort of challenges that we've experienced over the last 14 or 15 months, they're taking comfort and they're escaping with music. So this uncorrelated aspect of the revenues is something that investors have a real appetite for, because they understand that in a world of Donald Trump's, and you know, all the craziness that's happening all over the world, that uh, having uncorrelated assets, at least in part of their portfolio is very important. So it took about a year and a half to do these 177 meetings. And eight of them said to me, um, don't ever darken our doorstep again. (laughs) It doesn't matter how successful you make this idea, our investors will never be, you know, the people that give us money will never be comfortable with this. Um, 38 of them said, you know, we're in, we want to do this. And they backed me with 200 million pounds. And the other remaining 130 odd all said, listen, you know, we think what you're doing is fascinating and uh, we love it but we can't be your guinea pig. So you go away and make this successful and then you come back and see us, which is how we've gone from being a 200 million pound company to being, as I say, a 2.2, 2.3 billion dollar company. Um, because we went back to every one of those 131 investors that said, we don't want to be your guinea pig. And we've also that now gone to you know another 300 or so on top of that. So about 490 or odd investors that make up the two. $2.2 billion that's in hypnosis, and that's allowed us to buy 63,000 of the most wonderful songs in the world.
3: Okay, why is the company based in Guernsey? It's
2: based in Guernsey for tax reasons. Um, And that's not, you know, Guernsey is a, a British Channel Island, so it's not tax avoidance. But, you know, for example, we get the vast majority of our money, our earnings comes from the United States right if we were based on the mainland in the UK that those US earnings would be subject to withholding tax by being based in Guernsey they are not subject to withholding tax
3: does that mean there are people actually in guernsey our administrators and
2: and Our administrator, an administrator in this instance is very different to our publishing administrator. Our administrator in this instance are the people that deal with the money on Hypnosis's part. So I, I never touch hypnosis money. Hypnosis money is only ever touched by our administrators. They make all the payments on our behalf. They collect all the monies on our behalf. You know, everything gets paid through into to uh, uh, our Guernsey bank accounts. So yeah, we have a a small team of people in Guernsey, but the majority of our people are in London and we have 83 people between London and Los Angeles.
3: Okay, you have a unique structure, and I'll let you explain it because I don't want to make a mistake, where there is the company hypnosis that owns the assets, yet you work for a different company that provides management services. Why, and how does that
2: work? So this, so this is what's known as an investment trust and it's a classic construct on the London stock market, right? So, so there are many, many investment trusts, the vast majority of the companies in, in, in the FTSE 250 uh, are investment trusts. And this construct of having a vehicle that owns the assets and that has no liabilities beyond the ownership of those assets is a very, very it allows for a very, very clean company, and then you have an investment advisor that then manages those assets. So I'm the founder of both companies. I'm the founder of the parent company, if you like, or the the the, the main company, which is the asset holder, Hypnosis Songs Fund Limited. I'm also the founder of of the Family Music, which is the company that manages those assets and that buys those assets on be, behalf of of, of of the fund. And as I say, this is a, a, a classic English stock market construct. Um, and we've gone, you know, in the, 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 the three years plus that we've been doing this, we've gone from being a normal listing on the London stock market to a year later on the back of success being a premier listing. And then 14 months ago, 15 months ago, we became a FTSE 250 company. We're one of the biggest companies on the London stock market. And we're the number 23 biggest yielder on the London stock market, meaning that there are only 22 companies that are paying a bigger dividend to their investors than we are.
3: Okay, there was some scuttlebutt about this recently. Can you explain how the management company, the family operation gets paid and how you get paid as opposed to the investors? Because there were some analysts and investors were kicking around uh, raising questions about this.
2: Yeah, there's, there were, there were um, some newspaper reports that, um, you know, were basically making the point that the more I invest and the more money I raise the more the family music gets paid, right? But of course, and and that's a fair statement to make. It's it's an accurate statement to make. We get paid on the back of the money that we raise and the money that we invest. So we, you know, on the first 500, uh, sorry, first 250 million pounds that we raised, we got we get paid 1% of that as a management fee on the next 250 million pounds we get paid 0.9%. This is all a matter of public record so I don't mind mind disclosing this. And then on, on everything beyond that first 500 million pounds, we then get paid 0.8%. So the more money we raise and the more money we invest, the more we get paid. So there are, are we're, we're a couple of newspaper reports that we're making that point and that we're making that point as, as as perhaps being the motive of why we raise so much money and why we invest so much money and uh, what they were missing, of course, was that every one of our investors has backed us with that money for the last three years. As I say, growing it from the initial 200 million pounds to now what is, you know, 1.7, 1.8 billion pounds, 2.2, 2.3 billion dollars. Um, and the reason why they've backed us is because part of the thesis from the get go was that there was a limited opportunity here to buy these assets, these great songs, at attractive prices. I think that two years from now, three years from now, it won't be, you know, you'll be buying these songs for um, income, but you won't have the same exponential net asset value growth that you'll have based on what we've bought over the last two years and what we'll buy over the next two years. Um, and and all of our shareholders have understood that from the get go. It's been a part of those discussions from the get go, and it's why they continue to back us with with, with each fundraise and, and allow us to continue to um, uh, invest in these great songs.
3: Okay, so let's just understand: there is hyp- there is hypnosis that owns the songs. Who owns Family? And how does family get paid? Yes, when let's just use round numbers. You raise 100 million, you get 1%, that's a million dollars. That goes to family. Is that distributed? How do what, who owns family? How you know, how's family run?
2: So I own the family. I have some minor shareholders in it as well. And the family employs, as I say, the better part of 83 people around the world with those fees, right? So the fund has no expenses other than its legal fees and other than its brokers and professional advisors, one of which is the family. But the people, those 83 people that manage the fund around, uh, 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 on the, manage the assets on behalf of the fund are paid for by the family.
3: Okay so you know you raise 100 million you get a percentage that goes into the family how much does the family make what's the return to the family on regular income
2: well, that's not a that isn't a matter of, 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 of public income, but as, as I say, you can do the sums. You know, we the family makes approximately ten million pounds a year, and out of that ten million pounds a year it pays for offices, it pays for eighty-three employees, it pays for the expenses of operating and managing these songs to the best of its ability.
3: I guess what I'm asking, let's assume I'm an investor, okay? I know I'm paying you approximately one percent on every hundred million, but since family is doing the work, so to speak, isn't there a raw percentage that I know that I will have to pay family every year? How does that work? Because an investor is going to want to know
2: when well, all of that is is spelled out, and we have a, a you know one of the things about being a public company is that you have to have a prospectus. And the prospectus is a document that is a couple of hundred pages long that is a legal document that literally spells out everything that there is to know, from costs to you know, what the upside is, what the potential downside is, what the investment policy of the company is, what the borrowing policy of the company is. Literally every aspect of how we do business is spelled out in that 200-page prospectus, and the, the the prospectus is something that's updated on a yearly basis, and whatever changes are, are are you know to any of those policies goes into that document. So all of our shareholders are very very clear and very aware on a daily basis of exactly how we operate.
3: Okay, so let me ask you a different question: What is the present percentage? And who negotiates the change in the percentage? Since this is a better public record.
2: Yeah. So the the present percentage is 08 percent of every penny raised, right? So you know, point uh, zero eight percent. No, 0.8 of a percent of one yes. percent, right? Um, so that is that's the current rate. Then we also have a performance fee. When that performance fee is ten percent over a ten percent hurdle, so that's something that you'd have to get your calculator out and and, and, and try and figure out. Well, I, and, think, and, and I think I think we understand
3: fee. it, but what you're saying is the
2: performance fee is what family gets paid. The management fee and potentially so a man the management fee is guaranteed. Right, which is that and how 0. much is 8%? that percent? As that's the 08 percent. Oh, so the, you get paid
3: not only when you not only when you raise it, you're getting paid 08 percent of the total fund every year. Correct. Okay, so you get the point eight, then ten percent beyond ten percent of net also goes to family.
2: Correct. And that's so the and and that and on, and on that there's no guarantee because that's based on where the share price is for the entire month of March, which is the last month of, of, of our fiscal year. So depending on what the average weighted share price is during that entire month, we might make a performance fee, we might not. If we've raised money, we won't make a performance fee because when you raise money, the share price goes down because there are shares that are being offered at, 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 a, at a at a discount for people to come in and 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 invest more money so because of the fact that we've been so acquisitive um and because that's been the focus the performance fee is 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 something that's been a very minor part of our world so far
3: okay okay. so let's just go back for those you know make it very basic let's assume for the sake of round numbers hypnosis generates a hundred million dollars in a year that is not how family gets paid. Family gets Correct. paid the 0.8 Family gets paid the point eight percent and if you're doing well the stock price will go up and then you'll get the 10% beyond the
2: 10% Correct. That is roughly accurate in simple terms.
3: Okay. So if the stock price does not go up Family does not get paid beyond the 0.8% of total funds
2: raised. Correct. In order for us, in order for us to get paid a performance fee, we need to, to, to have the stock price up.
3: Okay. So, let's assume I you want to raise money. Are you raising money? You no, know, there's different ways. Is it all part of the same company? Is it a separate fund? How does that go when you raise additional funds?
2: It's all part of the same company. There is, no, there is no fund one, fund two, fund three. It's all a public company. It's all, all trades under the ticker of song, S O N G, and it's all one company. Now, there are instances where you may, and without getting complicated, where you may raise money as a C share rather than an ordinary share. And then that C share, once it's fully invested, would then be merged into the ordinary shares. So that can happen at different times, depending on on what the circumstances of the fundraiser are. But in in general, the way to the the correct way to look at it is it's all one company.
3: So let's assume, for the sake of discussion, you want to raise a hundred million. A. Who makes that decision? And B. Do the shareholders have to approve it?
2: I make that decision, and then that is in in in, in a uh, conjunction with my advisors, which are in general my brokers, and my brokers are J.P. Morgan, the Royal Bank of Canada, and an English company called N plus One Singer, which is the company that brought us to the stock market. And then I go out and I speak to all of our investors, and they have a choice of how much they want to put in. So the the investors. Can't stop us from raising money, but if they, but they certainly can choose not to put money in 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 that latest fundraise.
3: Okay, but theoretically, they could be they could see it as being somewhat diluted relative to the stock market if you raise more money.
2: When you go out and you do that raise, you're you're right that people come in at a, a strike rate, right, and that strike rate. Is based on what the NAV is of the company, net asset value is of of the company at that moment in time. So the current um, uh, NAV of the company is 119 pence and change. The current share price of the company is about 123 pence, so we're trading at a premium of about four or 5%. And if we were to issue new shares tomorrow, and we issued some new shares, a small amount of new shares last week, as an example, then those shares were issued at one pound 18, and people came in, and because of the fact that we're taking this money and investing it in more assets, no one is diluted because the market cap of the company grows at the same time with the investment. So it's not like you're taking $100 million or £100 million and you're spending it on overheads that don't increase the value of the company. You're spending it on assets that do increase the value of the company. So there is no dilution.
3: So, as you mentioned earlier, one of the good things about publishing, especially with some of these iconic acts of the 70s thereafter, they actually own the publishing. So, you've got great acts, you've got 150 acts, but there's a huge number of people out there who still own their publishing. How does hypnosis, will hypnosis buy what's available or does at some point does hypnosis close its fund and say close its organization you know, we're only managing X number?
2: Well, there's certainly a ceiling to our growth, but that ceiling is, is driven by what I referred to as the third uh, key factor in what I wanted to achieve with hypnosis, which is that I wanted to take that traditional publishing and replace it with song management, right? Now, in order to be an effective song manager, there's obviously a ceiling on on what you can do. So we currently own 63,000 songs, over 5,000 of those songs are number one songs, over 15,000 of them are top 10 songs, over 40,000 of them are top 40 songs, and the rest are the ones that that, that came with them. And we're 2.2, as I say, billion or so dollars invested. In the next two years, I expect to be somewhere around the five billion or $6 billion mark invested. And I expect to grow the fund from the 63,000 songs that it is today to about 125,000 to 150,000 songs. At that point, I will also have grown the active management team to about 200 people so that we stay on that less than 1,000 songs per person. Um, and at that point, you know whether it's 200 to 250 people, whether it's 125 to 150,000 songs, I think that that is the real ceiling on being a song management company because I don't think you can manage more than 250 people. I don't think that you can manage more than 150,000 songs with the sort of responsibility that I want to manage songs equally well coinciding with that same two and a half two to two and a half year period i think that the true value of streaming will be reflected in the song the, the data that you buy these songs on and i think at that point you know there'll be a lot of people that want access into this space i don't think that there'll be a lot of access left i think that there's a lot of pipeline out there today whether it's for me whether it's for primary wave, whether it's for Round Hill, whether it's for all of, you know, KKR, these other companies, BMG that are, are, are looking to buy as well. I think there's more than enough pipeline to go around for everybody. Everyone has their own relationships. But I think that at, at, at a certain point, there'll be a lot of other people wanting to enter the space. There won't be a lot of, of, of action left in the space, and the multiples will really explode because people will want to pay very very high prices to get their hands on these assets and I'm just to be clear I'm never a seller, you know, people like Larry Mistel, they buy, they sell, that's the business that, that, that they're in. We don't sell. We're and, and we've been very, very clear with our investors from the get go. And it's the reason why I did this as a public vehicle, because I never want to turn around, I don't know how Larry rationalizes it when he talks to someone like Stevie Nicks, that you know, he might be selling her catalog in two years' time, but I never want to be in a position where I'm looking someone like Neil Young in the eye and say that, you know, guess what, we've just sold your catalog. So the reason to do this as a public company is because effectively the capital is permanent. Whereas private equity money has five year terms, ten year terms, you know, and, and and at that point you have to, to 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 sell and 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 you know, I never want to be in that position. And yeah. I've even gone to the extent in terms of protecting my integrity with the songwriter where if for any reason our shareholders should ever want to sell or if our shareholders should ever want to get rid of me, they have to sell the catalog to me because my relationship is with the artists and the songwriters and the producers in, that have allowed me to become the custodian of, 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 of these great works. Um, and that's an important part of what we do.
3: Okay. So, you know, you really went to my next question. So getting to some stock market issues, I would assume A, the company has no debt. B, it's traded on the stock exchange. C, could they get rid of you and family? D, could someone come in and buy all the stock and essentially own the company and run it their way?
2: So in terms of of A, yes, we're a public company on the stock market. As I was saying, we're a FTSE 250 company, one of the highest yielders on the index. And of course, with that success, having given our shareholders a 40% total return over the last three years, a 21, 22% return over the last year, um, you know, we're looked upon very, very kindly, particularly in a uh, pandemic environment. Um, We do have debt because our prospectus allows us to lever Our assets by 30%. um, And that's because our investors want to get paid their dividends. uh, And they want to, to basically by using leverage, get even higher dividends and even higher total returns. So the leverage is something that is agreed at 30%. And we have uh, a, a great uh, consortium of, of, of lenders led by J.P. Morgan and City National Bank that do that job for us. Um, and then in terms of, of, of the family, I have a 10-year agreement as the founder of, of, of both sides. I have a 10-year agreement um, with the fund. That agreement rolls over. Um, and I can only, you know, we can ever only ever be removed for cause. Um, as I mentioned before, we have uh, an administrator that handles all the money for the fund. That is an independent administrator. We never touch or see any of the fund's money. Um, We just manage the the, the assets and and the buying of of the assets. I have a board of directors that is five people strong, that is led by a guy called Andrew Such, that's uh, a a corporate governance specialist, um, but that includes people like Paul Berger, who's the former head of Sony UK and Sony Europe, was also the head at one time of Sony Canada. Sylvia Coleman, who was his deputy at Sony UK and Sony Europe, Andrew Wilkinson, who was the business manager, along with Prince Rupert Lowenstein of the Rolling Stones, and uh, Pink Floyd, Um, and then another guy who's a, 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 a private equity governance specialist called Simon Holden. And those people obviously are there to hold my feet to the fire and make sure that all of the boxes are ticked properly and that both corporate governance and compliance is adhered to at all times. I'm also surrounded by my brokers at JP Morgan and N Plus One Singer and the Royal Bank of Canada that are also there to protect shareholders as well as to guide me in my dealings with shareholders. Um, so it's a very, very robust situation. And then, as I said. You know what? What you know. One of the things that the, the the financial community understands is that whatever the asset is, whether it's in the case of hypnosis songs and music that's created by artists and songwriters and producers, or whether it's something else, the key component is: do you or don't you have access? Right? And they understand that that access is quite often based on integrity. And the relationships that someone has built over a long period of time, so it was very easy for me to be able to prevail upon those investors, and uh, uh, you know, create a deal whereby should our you know investors ever want to get out of the fund. You know, it's very easy for them in an in a investment trust because they can get out, the, sh- the, the shares are very liquid, and someone else will replace them the next day. But if for whatever reason, if we decide that the company should not be a public company anymore, then the only person that these assets can be sold to are me, um, unless, again, unless I'm fired for, for cause – and I'm never going to put myself in a position having built all this. Okay, just, just so pause. I
3: understand, you talk about the 10-year rollover. Are you talking about you, Merck, or family? And just the other question being, theoretically, I'm not saying it's going to happen, could someone come along and buy up all the assets so effectively they have control? Or is there some kind of voting structure or something that makes it that that can't happen?
2: So, when I talk about the family and Merck, we're effectively one and the same because the company is my company with the exception of a few minor shareholders, and therefore the the contract that I have with the fund. Is through the family music limited as my operating company. Um, in terms of of you know th- any company that's on the stock market could be the subject of a hostile takeover. There's, there's you know that and that's something that of course shareholders would have to vote on. And uh, uh, you know there's there's always the chance when you're in, on, on the on the public market that even though something like that is remote, there's always a possibility that it could happen.
3: Okay. Now, just talking about the landscape in general, what are the new opportunities in sync and what are the new opportunities relative to collection in general? And where is the focus of your managers?
2: So, the focus is very much on getting more out of these great songs and getting more out of them in many many different ways. So, you know, we own the great Al Jackson's catalog and when we bought Al Jackson's catalog, it was making predictable reliable income of 400 grand a year. But, you know, 82% of that income was concentrated on one song. Al Green's Let's Stay Together. And as you probably know, Al Jackson as the drummer in Booker T and the MGs had an incredible career between 1962 and when he died in 1975, where he wrote, you know, 13 or 14 of the most important soul pop classics, not only Let's Stay Together, but Still In Love With You and Call Me for Al Green plus seven or eight of his other biggest songs. He wrote, uh, uh, you know, Booker T and the M.G.'s Green Onions plus most of their big records, plus getting royalties on big records by Bill Withers and uh, Otis Redding and many, many others. So... 82% 80, 82% of the concentration of this 400 grand is on one song, Let's Stay Together, which just tells you what I was, you know, is a great example of what I was saying before about these. Uh, You know, big companies that have 20,000 songs per person. They don't have the ability to actively manage. They're just taking incoming requests. So in the year and a half that we've owned the catalog, we've gone from 400 grand a year to 600 grand a year. So we've grown the earnings by a third. But crucially in doing that, we've taken the earnings of Let's Stay Together from 82% of the overall number to less than 50% of the overall number. And the remaining 50% is now having put Green Onions in about 10 different movies. It's putting Call Me in a TV commercial. It's putting Still In Love With You in a movie, a TV commercial. And also having John Legend interpolate it in a new song on his last album that was top 10 all over the world that we own 40% of the new song. Um, because of the interpolation, so everyone is focused on 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 you know how to you know we basically operate every song on its own pnl as if it was its own business, not to institutionalize it, but basically to give a starting point to a conversation about whether or not we think the song is performing optimally. And in, in most cases, really to guilt people into going, hold on a sec, that song's way better than that. We should be doing way better than that with that song. And it gives that kind of impetus for people to go out and do something with it. So, you know, when we look at the Blondie catalog that we acquired a little more than a year ago, you know, when Blondie started and, and you've written two really important pieces over the last 10 days or so on TikTok, that everyone in the music business should read um, because these new opportunities whether it's TikTok, whether it's peloton whether it's triller you know these are, are are big opportunities one because there's massive consumption taking place and two because it's new income these are not income streams that are in the data on which you're buying these catalogs so it's real value add from the get-go so when 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 we Uh, signed Blondie. They didn't have a TikTok page. Amy Thompson, who's the chief catalog officer, got very, very excited, obviously, about Debbie Harry being the icon that she is, and Chris Stein and Debbie being the incredible songwriters that they are. They started a campaign to create Blondie's TikTok page. They put Heart of Glass up there. And You know, very soon after that, Miley Cyrus covered Heart of Glass. That gave us an opportunity to bring Debbie and Miley together and create some, you know, photos that look like Debbie and Miley, you know, the Miley of 2020 and Debbie of 1979 (coughs) together having a good time in a club that, you know, quote unquote went viral. And, you know, from last October, until the very moment, Heart of Glass hasn't been out, out of Spotify's viral chart, right? And, and, and you know, I think some at, at last count, you know, Blondie have had over a million participants on their TikTok channel. Um, the same thing is happening with Nile Rogers. We went out, took Everybody Dance, the great Chic song, um, and we made a new version of it with uh, DJ Cedric Gervais and Sound of Franklin with Niall featured, uh, you know, playing his guitar part. And that's becoming a hit all over again. And, you know, literally it came out in, in last, I think, October. And every week the streams are bigger on it and the TikTok numbers are bigger on it. So it's just really about, you know, what makes us different. I don't, I don't know if you know the statistic, but The Royal Bank of Canada, who as I mentioned is one of our brokers, um, they put out a comparison chart last year in July when we released our fiscal numbers for March 31st, 2020, the same day that Warner IPO'd. And they did a comparison between the two companies. And at that point, Warner Chapel had done $640 million. In their fiscal year, we had done $90 million in our fiscal year, so we did approximately 12% of Warner's numbers. They did it on 1.4 million songs, we did it at the time on 13,000 songs, so we did 12% of their revenue on less than 1% of the songs, their songs were putting out, or our songs were putting out $6,280 per song. Their songs were putting out $175 per song. And that's not because we're better than they are or we're smarter than they are. Quite the opposite. As I said before, there's great people working in those companies. It's purely because we're structured to be able to have the bandwidth to be able to actively manage these songs to do song management, rather than just collect passive requests. Merck,
3: you're a force of nature, and I'm very impressed. You certainly know your business and the business at large. You can pull these names, statistics, right out of your butt very easily. So I want to thank you so much for taking this time to illuminate about your history and hypnosis. I think people have a much better understanding of what's going on. Thanks again.
2: It's my pleasure, Bob. Thank you. And, and uh, please keep writing about the music that you love, because when you do, I, I think you're the best there is.
3: Well, thank you so much. Till next time, this is Bob Left.